Welcome to the Way of the Lamb podcast, a resource of the Center for Christian Formation. For more information, go to christianform.org. Thank you for joining us for a conversation on power and the church. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's good to be with you. This is Jamin Goggin. I'm here with my dear friend, Kyle Strobel. Hey, everyone. Good to be back with you. And it's our shared joy to invite you into a conversation we plan to have about power in the church. And if you missed our first episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first episode here of the Way of the Lamb podcast. But really all we hope to do in this kind of short series of podcast episodes is lean into questions about power in the church. And Kyle and I wrote a book, The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, that initially came out in 2017. And uh, so many years spent leading up to that book, contemplating, studying, dialoguing, praying through this question of power in the church. And then, of course, the years since have been filled with continued conversation between the two of us, but really a lot of conversations with others, uh, fellow believers, pastors, ministry leaders. And for us, so many of those conversations between he and I and with others um, really gave rise to a desire to to host a podcast and to have a have a conversation here that hopefully is enriching and encouraging to you all as we listen and we kind of contemplate um, this question of power in the church. I I remember Kyle uh, several years ago when we you know first came out with the book. Uh, of course, you know the publisher understandably is hoping that. We're going to do something to let people know that the book has come out. <laughs> and for those that don't know or listening in, uh, you know, publishers uh, are hoping and expecting that you know you're writing some articles and maybe getting on some other others' podcasts or, or communicating out something of the message of your book that you believe in it. And you want people to know about it, which I think is a good thing. And so I remember that season trying to kind of craft some articles and having some conversations with different you know, Christian publications, relationships we had. And one of those articles that we were working on was really seeking to kind of just articulate the primary argument of the book that uh, the evangelical church in North America had um, uh, kind of capitulated to worldly power, had embraced worldly forms of power, and um, in so doing had rejected a kingdom power. And uh, so much of our experience, obviously personally, bore that out. But so many of our conversations over the years with other kind of sages in the faith, as well as other pastors and folks in ministry kind of bore that out. And um, the, the church had embraced this way from below or way of the dragon, as we call it, power and strength for the sake of control and domination, um, as opposed to embracing the way from above, the way of the lamb, power and weakness for the sake of love. And so as we kind of work outlining that basic argument in the article, I remember one of the, the claims we were making was that this, this problem of embracing worldly power in the church was, as we saw it, the issue, the biggest issue the evangelical church in North America was facing in our day. And it was kind of the crisis of our time in the church. And I know to you and I, that didn't feel like actually a very bold claim. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. felt like a very reasonable claim, given those years of research and study and conversation and reflection. But I remember the editor's response. And mm-hmm. the editor's response was something like, hey, this is great. I think your argument totally makes sense. Really appreciate the, the themes you've drawn out here. But do you really think it's the issue? I mean, is it really the crisis of our day? I mean, isn't this or this or this or aren't these other things that certainly have equal concern or or problem? 
And to be fair to this editor, you know, they didn't have the kind of uh, years of study, reflection, and conversations that we had had leading up to writing the book. And so it wasn't as much in their heart, the kind of the problem and the challenge as it was ours. But nevertheless, I think as I reflect on that and I think about what has happened since the book has been released, I think what stands out to me is... I don't know this to be the case, but I would guess the editor may not respond that way anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, at the time of writing the book, there were a few stories that had kind of come out, um, kind of on the kind of, uh, you know, within kind of the social media sphere and kind of were, were kind of exposed under the landscape of kind of evangelicals and broadly things that had been going on in the life of the church and maybe what happened in Mars Hill. And, yeah. but nevertheless, it really wasn't until after a book came out that so many other stories yeah. of abuses of power, Toxic leadership uh, really came, uh, I think, into the evangelical consciousness, yeah. if you will, and, and were uh, identified, exposed. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't um, have any real appetite to go into a lot of specifics, but, um, you know, to, maybe to name a few for those that maybe aren't as aware of that, although I imagine many listening in are. But of course, we have. The recent crisis and what's going on in Southern Baptist Convention, this recent report that they've released. Yeah. And we have what more recently happened with Hillsong Church and um, moral failures, concerns of how power and leadership has been used. Um, we have sadly, grievously um, kind of a report of Ravi Zacharias and mm-hmm. um what really was going on in his life and ministry. Um, of course, what happened with Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. And of course, that's the church you grew up in. And yeah. so again, there, there, there's, there's so many we can name here and I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time exploring them in detail, but I think all to say, I, I imagine that at this point, there's no longer an active question about whether power the crisis of power in the church is the problem we face. I think uh, the answer is, yes, it is. But really the question is, what do we mean by that? And when we say that power is a problem, what do we mean? And in the first episode, we got into this discussion a bit already, which is we've got to get our terms clear here. If we're saying power is the problem, what are we talking about? Are we all talking about the same thing? What, when we say power is the problem, what do we really mean? What kind of power? And um, oftentimes we're not real clear about what we mean or what we mean is something rather reductionistic or yeah. simplistic in its kind of diagnosis and then therefore in its, its kind of remedies. And so I think what we want to recognize is this out the gate, that power funds everything we do. Power funds everything we do. And um, the question is not... Um, is power uh, driving um, decisions we make, actions in our lives personally, nor is it a question about whether power is funding what institutions um, and kind of corporate bodies do. Uh, The question is what form of power, right? What form of power is funding it? And um, part of our, of course, our, our, our argument would be there's only two ways of power here available. And there's the way from below and the way from above. And, and there's a way of worldly power and kingdom power. And so it's important for us to get our definitions in terms straight. It's important for us to pay attention to what we really mean when we say, yeah, it is obviously the problem, yeah. but how are we actually identifying what that problem is? And I think we talked about this a bit last episode, but I think it's worth bearing out again. I think oftentimes, sadly, what we mean is really 
nothing any different than, than kind of worldly power. In other words, whatever the kind of positive account of power we'd like to put forward actually isn't different in type or, or form necessarily. It just maybe is wielded by the right kind of people mm-hmm. or the right kind of group or with the right kind of structure. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, there's this kind of assumption that actually the same kind of power our culture trades in is the same kind of power we, we trade in. It, 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 this is the only kind of power up and running, the only one that is available to kind of fund what we do. It's a power to control. It, there is an element of competition in it. It's just hopefully we mitigate mitigate against kind of more unhealthy forms of that. Right? And so um, the assumption can be that um, that's all we've got. So we've got to kind of do the best we can with it. That might be yeah. one definition of power and how this shows up. Um, the, the other would be, no, no, no. It just is all bad. And so we do recognize it is controlling. It is coercive. That competition isn't a healthy way to relate to other human beings. And so therefore, we're not going to go with the option of just find a better structure, find a better model, find the right person. But we're going to go with just kind of the eject out of it all option. Yeah. You know, but as we talked about last episode, that's actually not, we actually can't do that. That, 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 that there's not a place we can find ourselves in which the dynamics of power aren't there again, because power does fund all that we do. And so I, I think those are maybe two ways it shows up. And maybe lastly, if we're just really honest, one of the ways it shows up is, yeah, this is worldly power is kind of all we have. And we do see no problem with wielding it that way. As long as we're doing it for good purposes, as long as we're doing it with good ends in mind, then so be it, let it rip. You know, let, let the leader kind of run everything as long as he seems to have a good vision and says it's about saving people for Jesus. Why would it matter? I mean, that, that is, I suppose, one other option out there for sale. And that is how some respond to it. But I don't think those are the only options out there. Um, And in particular, I don't think they're the only options that are discussed within the church. In, In other words, I don't think that um, we are the only ones who've been seeking yeah. to think think about what is a distinctively Christian form of power. And while I, I think we do have a problem here of often assuming worldly power and then just deciding whether we're going to wield it or not or how we're going to wield it, there are others, uh, not just us, who've sought to really say, no, no, we do need to have a Christian account of power here. Yeah. And it ought to look different. And here's what it ought to look like. And And we can't possibly one podcast episode, identify all of those. And surely there are many uh, that are, that are talking about this that we're not even aware of, but I think maybe be helpful Kyle to identify one significant option. We do think that is available that, that has kind of had some impact in the church uh, that has some weight to it. Mm -hmm. And that is distinctively Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's, you know, when we were working on this initially, it was amazing how little was out there. I mean, it's right. And, and in many ways, I still think this is, I think you're right. This is the prevailing problem in the church, but it's also the, the hardest thing to get the church to talk about. Um, I've never found a harder topic to get leaders to talk about more than power. And so that, that, that's interesting in and of itself. The other main, you know, as we were, as we were researching it and even in the midst of it, another book came out in the midst of our, we were publishing our own book. Another book came out on the topic um, is really the work of Andy Crouch. Yeah. And, you know, we chose not to be critical of Crouch's project in our book for several reasons. Um, We quoted it once positively, and that was on purpose. Um, We think it's a really good piece. um, And we think he's a very faithful ambassador for Christ, you know, and we disagree with him. 
the problem, of course, today is to disagree with someone means, you know, six degrees removed from you on Twitter. Someone's <laughs> demonizing them and saying they're not a Christian or so. So, right. you know, I, we, I want to say very upfront, like we, this is, this is an option that we, we should get. It's a faithful one. Like this yeah. is someone who's wrestled deeply and profoundly with culture, with scripture, with his call. And, and he's come up with a very integrated and interesting account of power. We just happen to disagree with him. That doesn't call into question his faithfulness. <laughs> you know? right. So to kind of qualify yeah. that up front, Absolutely. We, we appreciate him and what he's done. And, and then really there's, he's got a massive project he's undertaking now and his current turn to technology, I think is really interesting. But the two key books, he wrote a book earlier called Playing God. And then actually when we were finished, I think we were in manuscript form of our book, uh, the book Strong and Weak came out, which I thought was probably going to be exactly what we were up to. And and so I read it very interestingly, like, oh, what, what is this about? And it turned out to be very different for all sorts of reasons, just different interest in many ways. Um, but also it extends his previous project, Playing God. And, and so let me just keep trying to give you an overview. Again, read it for yourself. This is a, this is a very high quality book, a very thoughtful book. Um, but let me just name three things that he does that is is something we're going to kind of you know disagree with. We're going to go different directions with. Um, the first thing he does in his book, or the first way he grounds power, and in doing so, he's trying to articulate a distinctively Christian view of power. The first thing he does is he grounds power in the act of creation. And so let me just quote him here. He says, I actually believe the deepest form of power is creation. And that when power takes the form of coercion and violence, that it actually is a diminishment and a distortion of what it was meant to be. So notice there's this thing called power. And as he's reading scripture, as he's doing theology, the way he locates Christian power is in God's act of creation. So we could call that, so creative power is true power. Coercion, violence, right? Those are deconstructive acts, right? So, so there, that goes kind of against what, what power is for. But then secondly, he, after kind of grounding power in God's creative act, he turns to the fact that we were created as human beings in the image of God. And, and so he, he then writes this. He says, power is rooted in creation, the calling of something out of nothing, and the fruitful multiplying abundance of our astonishing world. It is intimately tied to image bearing, right? That's what we do. We're, we're those who bear the image of God. And is that, that unique role that human beings play in representing the cosmos's creator in the midst of creation, right? So true power is creative power. We're created in the image of God. Therefore, we're created to be folks that wield creative power, right? And then he talks about power as a gift. And, and by this, it's, it's that God has kind of granted human beings power and power is for human flourishing. And so it's, it's something that all human beings should kind of long for and seek. And it's something we can receive, right? That is given over to us. Right. The idea here for him being kind of uh, stewardship, right? That's the, right. The human yeah. person is now called to kind of steward the power that has been given. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and in some degree, power is something, it is something, right? It's something we can receive. And this is where, so, you know, I'll disagree in a moment about some of those things, but here, here's the key element, I think, is it's something that we receive that we've received in creation. So that human beings have this thing and to different degrees are given, you know, different 
I don't know, levels, we might say, of a power in this world. And we're supposed to wield it for the right purposes. He really lands, if you remember the last episode, we talked about power being from and power being for. He really focuses on the for, right? What is power for? And so basically the ability to make something, to create, make something in this world, that's what power is. And so good Christian power is this creative power for distinctively Christian ends. And is is from, of course, in principles. It does come from God. Yes. But it's, but it's located in God's act of creation. Yes, and it's endowed in, in human beings. Right. So so there's a we might and so let me just say something really positively about this. Whenever you're talking about human beings, there's two easy errors to make. The first error that I, I think we probably used to make more as evangelicals would be to skip over creation. So skip over Genesis 1 and 2 and land on Genesis 3. Right, say, right. What are we? We're bad. Right. We got right? a problem. We've got problems. We're evil and do all these things. <laughs> right. And so typically, you know, in evangelicalism, you get this kind of um, – we're, we're against our bodies. Our bodies are bad. And therefore, sexuality is all like inherently dirty. And like you get all these things that play out from that. The 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 other problem would be to to sit, I would say, for too long on how good we are in Genesis 1 and 2 and not kind of bring in what sin has done, right? So those are the two errors. And everyone's trying to thread that needle of, that, are, that are doing faith work. That's exactly what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to thread that needle. Right. And he's reacting against humans are all bad. And he's trying to turn to the goodness. But now notice that by, by endowing power and defining power in not only God's act of creation, but in, but in our being created in his image, now we're not grounding Christian power in conversion and in receiving the spirit. Right. Right. So now this is, this is where there's going to be a real tension for me as I'm reading this, because it means that Christian power isn't distinctively Christian. And it, and in, in, if power is just defined as something for something, a secular person could do that just as well as the Christian could. And I just think that runs against Jesus's claims. But what's interesting, and you know, in many ways, his account has a lot going for it. Again, this is a very faithful account. He's, he's done the biblical work. He's, he's worked very hard to be, think theologically about these things. But let me just raise some, some struggles I have with this and some things that we're worried about before we kind of turn to our own account. First, I actually think reading the Genesis account of creation in the frame of power is misguided. Like I, the Bible just doesn't do this. This is not primarily defining power. It's not primarily about power. I mean, even when I read, you know, his definition, when he talks about power as being primarily creative, he talks about it fruitful and multiplying. Well, notice he's taking language from Genesis 1 and 2, and he's just transcribing those into a definition of power. It's not like Scripture's making that link. He's right, making that link. Right. And he's developing an account of power that way. And ultimately, biblically, when Scripture turns to power and distinctively Christian power, it isn't creation, but it's the cross that defines these things. And this is where we really feel tension. Because what we're going to find in playing God in particular is the cross plays little to no role in how he develops that account. Um, he does a good job, I think, of really emphasizing the goodness of creation. And quite honestly, that has been something we have failed at. He even has a great turn at one point in the book. I remember reading it going, oh, wow, good for you. You really named this. When he he talks about people that overdo goodness in creation, right? He knows he's emphasizing that against something. And right. he recognizes there's problems of doing that too much. And so, again, he has a really balanced account. Um, what's interesting is, you know, looking at playing God, there's one point in the book where he he moves from creation to the incarnation to the resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. 
And the key move, of course, is the crucifixion. <laughs> that right. just isn't there, right? It doesn't play a major role. And yet, biblically, this is the defining feature of power. You know, one of, the, I think, the most profound things in Scripture is you have the Apostle Paul, right? Paul should have thought of, you know, if I were of Paul, right? If I would have been, you know, I would become a Christian when I did, I would have been like, this is amazing, right? I became a Christian after all the nonsense of the cross, this is great. I didn't have to deal with that. I didn't have to stand there and watch my teacher, Lord's son, murdered in front of me. I got all... And guess what? Pentecost has happened. Power. Boom. This right. is great. Right. What does Paul do? No one in history would have been more tempted to ground power away from the cross than Paul. Paul consistently uses the cross as the shape of power through all of his letters. That is fascinating. Right. This vision of Chris. The cruciform life. The cruciform Not life, only in yeah. his vocation as an apostle, but in the Christian life. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like that becomes the shape of this, right? And so this is where, you know, this is, this is a profoundly important reality that, that, that Paul regrounds these things in the cross. For him, it's not a historical event that we've moved beyond when we get to Pentecost. Right. It is the shape of Christian power. Again, for Crouch, he's, he's moved the ground of this to creation as such, rather than, I would say, new creation, right? Something received in, in, our, in our regeneration, our conversion. Right. And that is distinctively kingdomly. Now, let me say he has an advantage here because the, the way that he's run his account, he, much easier than I could, he can speak about Christian businessmen in the business world where you're working for a secular institution trying to be faithful. Because for him, there's a unified vision of power here, right? If power is all the same and it's making, it's, it's kind of causing things in the world. It's, maybe we would say, I don't want to reflect his words well, but maybe it's kind of creative action, right? Yeah. Anywhere yeah. kind of that, that kind of creative action is, is occurring. Yeah. And what makes it good is if it's for love. For, for, for flourishing. For flourishing and right. for love. Yeah. So, so again, I, we're going to agree with a lot of that. Right. But I want to say, but the kingdom has turned that on its head. And the kingdom understands these things only in and through the cross. But this leads to then, so so after he wrote that book, he then clearly kind of recognizes there's more to say here. And in particular, there's more to say about weakness. Um, and I think he probably recognized that it, it was a pretty glaring kind of um, hole in the book about the clearest passage in Scripture it would be 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's hard to see how that fits into what he's developed in playing God, particularly by grounding it in creation. I think most of us look at our world and it we just say, well, that isn't how the world works, right? That's not how the power is. Like people who are powerful don't wield their weakness. They destroy it. I mean, we have a thing called strength finder right. for a reason, right? right? You find out what your weakness is and you never work in it, right? That's how things get done. It's the, the um, you know... The kind of proverbial final question in the interview room, right? So if you were to <laughs> tell right. us one thing that you're not good at or one flaw yeah. that you have, what would it be? Yeah. And of course, we all know how to respond to that, right. which I is- I work too hard. I, I, I care too much and I work too hard. <laughs> that's right. right? I'm and, too devoted. And somehow yeah. that's actually taken as a good response. I mean, yeah, we yeah. joke about it, but it's actually taken as like the the, the right strategy and a right response and, yeah. and how aghast someone would actually totally. be if you said, well, let me tell you about some of my weaknesses, right? We, we wouldn't dare do that. This is, this is a form of death is to yeah. identify, name, expose, and even embrace a weakness we might have. Totally. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. 
So he he clearly recognized that playing God didn't give the full account, and he wanted to round that out. And so in his book, Strong and Weak, he's, he's again, it's follow-up to playing God, and he's trying to kind of develop his account. And he says this. He says, the paradox of flourishing, right? So if, if power's for flourishing, now we discover there's a kind of, the scripture gives us a paradox here. He says, the paradox of flourishing is that true flourishing requires two things that at first do not seem to go together. Here's the paradox. Flourishing comes from being both strong and weak. He then goes on to develop this by using an XY axis where you have, he says, properly combined authority, that's one of the axes, and vulnerability lead to flourishing. So in authority, you have this, this kind of strength, vulnerability, you have a kind of weakness. So, so in a sense, power is strength which is authority in in some way and a weakness is kind of is vulnerability yes and and you have to kind of hold these together right so they go together so for to be a christian leader again he does a really good job of war one worry which is a demonizing power and he's saying that's not right right Authority's good. Right. We we need to have authority. So you have authority. Well, what does it mean to be authority? Well, you you need to also have this embrace of your vulnerability. And he uses he uses some um and I think you know one of his great strengths is cultural analysis and I mean he's a brilliant writer as well, but he is a brilliant kind of analyzer of cultural things. And but in it he talks about like the importance as a leader of being also a learner. Um but here's you know, again, my worry would be I could say the same thing to a group at Google and they would all nod their heads because there's something that, again, just in, that's not actually antithetical to worldly power. Yeah. We, we might have a, a, a different conception of what the flourishing is or maybe right, other yeah. language that I imagine I, I would think um, Crouch would want to trade in. We might have a different vision of what the common good would look like. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so there, there may be some difference. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but not always. But to your point, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, you totally. Know? In and, many cases, yeah, maybe not. Right. And you know, I think you know what what ends up becoming really clear in the account is that is, is when he talks about the paradox, he's now reading scriptures saying we have to hold together strength and weakness, whereas what scripture explicitly says is my power, the power of the Lord, which is not the power we have is made perfect through our weakness. Paul's response to that in 2 Corinthians 12, 10 is to talk about the power of God that um, rests upon him. The technical language here is tabernacled upon him. So notice the image. You don't have power that is kingdom power, right? That, again, that that isn't grounded in creation. There, I think Crouch is right in the natural sphere. As Christian citizens... You know, we, we could talk this way as as just people in general. I can I can make changes to the world. I can affect the world around me. And we can talk about power that way. That is certainly right about that. Yes. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom, something else comes in here. And now the power we have in the kingdom to make actual change in the world, like the widow with her little might did, that the Pharisees with their buckets of money couldn't, to make that kind of change is to embrace your weakness and recognize that power comes from outside of you, which is precisely why your ability to be powerful isn't somehow determined by your status in this world, the privileges you have, the money you have, 
the influential like resources. You have like none of that because that's not the kind of thing the kingdom is. And this is where, you know, I, and, you know, Crouch to his credit recognized that in his first book, it, there's a certain kind of crowd. We, we might think of it as the kind of particularly the hipster kind of kind of crowd who loved his book because as long as you were making artisan coffee for the Lord, it was faithful, right? It was like, this is good, like good quality creative work is faithful. And I think, I don't know if someone pointed that out to him or he just realized it. You've left aside people with disabilities as having any significant place in the kingdom. Right. I mean, this is, this is the obvious problem is what do you do with those who do, do, don't have the capacity That's right. to create in the way that we're envisioning yeah. it's uh, for the sake of problem. human flourishing? Yeah, it's a huge problem. And he recognized it. I mean, and Strong Week, I think, was written in many ways because he wants to wrestle with that. Ultimately, I'm unsatisfied with the answer because I still think he's baking in a view of human strength that Jesus undermines. The problem isn't that we need to be both strength and, and we want to have both strength and vulnerability at the same time. The reality is you need to die and you need to be raised from the dead in the kingdom of God by Christ, that it's his spirit coming upon you, that that, that kind of advances these things. It's the fruit of his action that ultimately bears the fruit of the kingdom. Yeah, that it's it's not merely kind of the modification of our motives. No, no, no. Right. You know, we have some slightly better motives, nor is it... Um, kind of amending the goals we might have, you know, as long as I have come some, you know, Christianity is kind of giving me a different set of motives here. Mm -hmm. And now I have maybe some different objectives or goals to achieve and that, that that's it. Yeah. But actually to, to your point, it, it's a question of actually new creation. Yeah. And what does it mean that, um, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's the kind right. of radicality of the language of the New Testament that that's signaling to us mm-hmm. there's now this whole other reality in which you are uh, partaking and participating yeah. in. And uh, what, I, what I hear in part is um, maybe a lack of recognition of the, of the radicality Um that is in Christ by the spirit and what it means to uh, um, what, what salvation entails, maybe simply put. Yeah. Well, it, and it's, it's salvation entails, but I think more so it's, it's what, what we would often call the kind of, um, you know, creation and kingdom question mark, right? Like how right. do those things interact? Um, crouches in a, in a group that has a very, a very concrete and a very well-developed account of that. And we just happen to see it differently than that. Um, I have some some worries that I've inherited from several places, Martin Luther being one of them, um, about a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. And I think a theology of the cross needs to undermine these things, any sort of um, human ability to kind of achieve the kingdom. I mean, it's it's important to me that the new Jerusalem descends. Yes. It isn't, it isn't built Right. We don't create it. God yes. has to give it over. It's made without hands. And and I and, you know, for me, you know, because power is not only for love, like as he would say, he would agree. But but it comes from and through our weakness, right from God received through our weakness. Now I have to wrestle very deeply with my motivations, with my inclinations, with it's not only for love, but it has to be from love. I think first Corinthians 
13 is important here. Like, why is it that someone could sell all of their belongings and give it to the poor and it'd be a meaningless act if it's not for love? Yes. Like, there's that. that's not just simply it's for the right act. Because he's saying someone could do that, which from the outside, this is a loving act. Right? Most yes. people, we wouldn't, wouldn't even doubt that's a loving act. Yes. What other kind of act is it? But there is some internal reality, some intentionality to it. And so we have to wrestle with how actually do we embrace these things? How actually have we embraced our weakness? And I worry that the the assumption still rests upon our ability to be savvy. You know, the the creation, by, by grounding power in creation rather than the cross— even if he's not meaning this, my worry is the people that read him, what they'll take from this is we just have to be savvy. If we do, uh, if our building looks good enough, if we have the right kind of art on the walls, if my, if my preaching style is good enough. I mean, remember, one of Paul's critiques of the church to the church of Corinth is that there's a method of preaching that undermines the power of the cross. Well, the, why are we stopping with just preaching, right? There's a there's a way to worship that undermines the power of the cross. There's a way to do your devotionals that undermines the power of the cross. There's a way to approach politics that undermines the way. You know, we need to recognize that we can't just articulate power aimed and for the right sorts of things. And so, you know, in our mind, there, there's a, you know, I've already kind of tilted my hat towards what what our account would be different. You know, I mean, by by turning just to the kind of power and creation, there's a couple of things I'd have. One, I'm going to say biblically, we just don't see that. Um, God is, if, if I'm going to define true power anywhere, it's going to be in, in the inner life of God before the creational life of God. I think he's not wrong to have a vision of power that is grounded in creation. I mean, again, you know, we used to draw a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. Um, I don't want to get into this story too much, but from Augustine <laughs> on, right, there human beings all have the natural capacity in creation to be good and to affect change in the world. That's natural virtue. But whether you're Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, none of them thought you could advance Christian virtue that way. You couldn't do kingdom things out of your natural creational realities. You had to be infused with something from above by God. Yeah. And our view of power is that sort of thing because we think scripture points us there. And so what we discover, and again, if you want a good example historically, it's really interesting how Calvin shifts from talking about kind of conversion to mortification and vivification, our death. We, let, we put to death these things in our lives. This is a way of thinking about embracing our weakness precisely because God and his power is the one who brings life in us, vivifies us. Yes. And that movement of death for resurrection, the movement that's, that's epitomized in the cross, that is going to lead us into an entirely different vision of power that is kingdom power. And let me just end this and we'll turn back to you. I want to hear your, your thoughts on this. But I, I, this is good news. Because it means you don't have to create a powerful life in yourself. It also means you can't do that. <laughs> and we can lay down those projects. And we can trust that God, like the disciples, met us and we had no worldly power. We, we, we had nothing of significant to wield. And he endowed them with something that wasn't merely theirs because they were creating God's image, but because they were recreated 
by the Spirit of God in the image of Christ, image and likeness of Christ, that he now endowed them with a power that comes through their laying down their life and embracing his. Uh, another way we could put that is Jesus was serious when he said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose them. But if you lose them for my sake, you will find them. Hmm. Finding your life is finding a powerful human life. It's only available to you through your weakness if you lose your life. That's right. Yeah, I, I think the the distinctively Christian um, account we're seeking to offer is, I think, again, well anchored in, in, in Paul's language there in Corinthians as he gives us a window into his encounter with Christ uh, amidst his weakness and his wrestling. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I think... Often, I think the key thing we miss in that text is Jesus is saying, my power yeah. is made perfect in your weakness. Not, there's a capacity of power you have that you're going to finally get to. But I just have a different way of getting there. Yeah, yeah. Now you got to go through your weakness to get there. But it's still ultimately kind of about you and a capacity you have, something you can do. And Jesus is saying something totally contrary to that notion. Mm-hmm. No, what, what I'm inviting you to do is embrace your weakness and not to run from it, hide from it, avoid it, cover it over with all your strengths and abilities, mm-hmm. but to embrace it. And it's in the embracing of it that you will find I tabernacle there. Yeah. And what you will discover is a power that is not your own, mm-hmm. that is not your own. And I think this is, this is Jesus in John 15. Uh, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I, I think we hear that and may, maybe our minds move rather quickly to, oh, you know, surely there's like certain kinds of things he's saying we can't do without him, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or do without him in some kind of, I don't know, objective sense of, of, of belief. Like, um, of course we, we believe that everything we have comes from God mm-hmm. or, um, we owe all to Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross, right? Where Jesus is clearly talking about a relational participatory reality in the text, yeah. right? Abiding, remaining in me, um, not just affirm something and, and move on and go back to kind of trying your best to do, to do what you can in your capacity. But there's now a life of utter dependence that you're called to. And it's that very life where power is found and known. But again, it's a power that's not your own. Yeah. The, the fruit that's being produced here in your life, it's not generic. It's yeah. very specific. It's the fruit of love. Mm-hmm. And that fruit of love is not the fruit of your best intentions or your kind of, um, you know, kind of your rounded off and kind of cleaned up motives, but it's, it's the fruit of the, the spirit's work. Now, in and through your very person, the spirit that now indwells you, this my spirit, Christ yeah. says, that I've given you, right? And so in this sense, I think maybe one of the things I'm really hearing you draw, Kyle, that's maybe, I think, drawing to attention, I think, and a helpful, helpful clarifying point is when we say power in Christian terms, we're not talking about a thing. We're talking about God, mm-hmm. God acting and moving. And... 
I think we're doing so in a, a richly evangelical way that actually I think many who've grown up, again, in kind of evangelical church context, we have, with, oh, yeah, I know that, which is it's about relationship. <laughs> it's about abiding in a certain kind of relationship that is isn't indeed personal. And personal, not in a generic sense, but in a very specific sense, right? That we're abiding in the person of the Son, um, that the, the, the person of the Spirit is now at work in, in and through my person. Yeah, yeah. And that what I'm encountering is the Jesus who says to me, my power is going to show up there. Yeah. And now you get the, the grace and the joy and the privilege of um, participating in and being a part of that work. But of course, it's not about you. I don't, I don't need you. I don't need your, your potential. Yeah, yeah. I don't need your gifts. I don't need your best intentions, <laughs> you know, but, but what I am calling you to is to dependence, mm. to embrace your weakness, um, that, that my glory might, might redound, right. Yeah. That, that now in that life, what I, what is seen by the world around is, wow, I, we can't explain that. How do we explain that? Yeah. There's something powerful going on there and powerful in a way that we don't typically mean, but it is powerful and it's not coercive and it's not controlling. It's not, it's not about competition. Um, it's not about wielding a personality for self glory, but something powerful is happening there and that person's life and they're impacting others in a way that we could only describe as blessing. Even if we don't use that language, right? Yeah. Somehow they're blessing the world around them. And yet there's a fragility and a weakness and a humility about that person that the effect of their life, I, I can't explain it by their person. Yeah. And, well, and, yeah. and, and, I, and I think mm. maybe one of the challenges we have here, Kyle, is how some of that sounds at times to us is as though, um, well, well, now what does that mean? I, I'm not doing anything? Like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it, so does this mean we reject any notion that, that God has created us with this capacity to affect the world around us or affect reality, which is, I think, a... a a fundamental definition of power in a creational sense that we would very much affirm in our book. There, there is yeah, yeah. a creational sense which image bearers can affect reality, can affect the world around them. Yeah, right? yeah. In a distinctive way, in a way that totally. other creatures yeah, exactly do right. not in yeah. God's created order. And Crouch does a great job and, of articulating and, that. And I think it's not denying that, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's, it's recognizing that something indeed significant has happened here in, in salvation and in this invitation to now pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And that there's something of this, this reality of, of abiding life in God that does kind of open me now to a work that God is himself doing. But I think the tension is, okay, so now do I have to abandon all of that capacity to do things? And I like, Am I supposed to somehow show up willless and I just kind of sit and wait for God to do stuff? I mean, you and I both know this can totally. be the response to this. Yeah, and I think totally. the text that comes up for me in thinking about this, Kyle, and maybe I'll kind of push it back to you and kind of reflecting on that question. But the text that comes up for me is Paul in Colossians chapter one, uh, Colossians one twenty nine. You know, Paul says, for this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Yeah. I mean... If there's a, any verse that kind of gets at the heart of this tension we feel, and if we're honest, doesn't make sense to us. Well, either I'm striving and I'm working hard to kind of wield this capacity I have creatively for the good, mm -hmm. for the sake of flourishing. Either I'm doing that 
or it's a power that God is working within me. It's, it's, it's one or the other. So which one is it? Right. And either it really is true that I have to utterly depend upon Christ for everything. And I don't even really know what that would mean. So I, I, okay, I've got to do that. Or it means that what Jesus just kind of meant there was, Hey, don't forget that you, you kind of owe your life to me. I saved you. And, That's right. to, you know, yeah. and, but, you know, get on with the doing of the Christian life and get on with the doing of, um, you know, seeking the common good by wielding your capacity for power to create culture, to create, you know, um, uh, maybe institutions, to create works of art, to, to preach a great sermon, to run a business a certain way that, that, that hopefully is for the sake of human flourishing, but kind of get on with it. You know, I think we feel the tension of the either or, and we struggle with Paul here when he says somehow it's a striving Mm -hmm. and yet somehow it's with the energy that is being worked within me powerfully to use the language of power. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and I think you're right. I think what, if you take the accounts that we like, so and I would say Crouch's account is one of those, right? So there's these accounts that we think are, are trying to be faithful to the biblical text. Again, we disagree with this account, but nonetheless, we take him very seriously. He does really good work. I think one of the ways that differentiates them is where they land on this question. So on one side, on Crouch's side, I would say he he hears that language and he says, okay, well, we've been given this power, right? And it's 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 kind of given over. We've received it. So now we have to enact it in these sorts of ways. And... And so then that allows him to have the conversation grounded in creation, because for him, that doesn't change things. Here's right? maybe the different yeah. difference in terminology here, Kyle. I'm wondering if this yeah, yeah. resonates for you. It's stewardship is, I think, the language he maybe would privilege mm-hmm. here. And what we're saying is we, we would privilege the language of abiding. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. There's a power I have to steward. And here what we're saying is, no, there's a power I actually now have to abide in. Yeah. And there's a way of abiding that actually is... In my weakness, coming to know his strength yeah. that, that is really his, powerfully working right. within me. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that, it's, that we just have forgotten in a lot of ways, um, and you see it now everywhere. I'm not suggesting Crouch is making this error. I, I, I don't know his work well enough to, to, to make this claim, but, and I wouldn't want to. But, you know, I think some of us hear the word Pelagian. And think, oh, yeah, this is a big problem. It's people that think right. they can kind of, you know, I don't know, save themselves or whatever. And, you know, Pelagianism was the view that not only um, like Augustine, when he's worried about Pelagius, it's that God has given us a plan, basically, a law that says, here's how you do it, do it. And if you can will that and if you can work that on your own, that's Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. And so now we have all sorts of count of liturgical formation. Right? You were formed by doing the right kind of liturgy. That's just Pelagian. That just is what it is. Um, the key text, they love the text that you referenced, but the tradition loved probably a bit more Philippians 2.12. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is God doing? He's willing in you. He's making you will and he's working, right? But Paul and the Christian tradition does not think that's against your ability to work out these things. The the tension I think we feel, and I think you nailed this this, this issue, right, is most of us look at this and say, 
well, this looks to me like an either or. Either we do it or God does it. So right. let's just go on and trust that because we're Christians, God's going to work for us. And we because we don't know what this does. Like, how does this change things? I think one of the differences that, so I think you're right about the difference. You know, well, and the, the irony, don't you think, is it, it, it actually right there is still assuming a worldly kind of power in making that judgment. Well, power is the kind of thing that's competitive. So either God's power is the one well, is, that's is right, the power yeah. at work or my power is the power at work. So, so once again, I think we're struggling to get at this, this distinctively Christian, dare we say, biblical account of yeah, what yeah. power is. So the, the felt experience in it, right, is, yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's, it's competitive. It's a zero-sum game. That's right. Either it's his power doing it or it's my power yeah. doing it. Yeah. And that typically – I hear this from students all the time. Like that, that – we, we tend to have a very reductive version of that. Yes. Um, I think what, what, you know, the way Crouch tries to wrestle with this, the way we would try to, I think, you know, for he, he's going to really focus on the fourness. It's for the right sorts of things. So, so we kind of harness this thing called power that God works within us. And, and, and we just focus on the right sorts of things and God's power will be at work in those kinds of ways. Um, whereas what I think we would want to say is it, it is going to shift and I, again, I would, I, I, there's plenty of people in the tradition that we're resting on to make these claims. But the way it shifts is now the end isn't getting something done in this world. Hmm. It's God. Yes. And by making him, that doesn't somehow undermine what we used to call penultimate ends, right? Um, well, if I love God, can I love my wife or is that idolatry? No, of course not. You can, but what we're learning how to do as spouses is to love our spouse from within God's love of us in a very real sense mm-hmm. and to love them the way God loved them, right? Like there's this, there's this greater end that reorients all of this. And part of what our view of power will do is that, that actually are, um, and I would say the same thing about virtue. Like your goal isn't primarily to become virtuous. Your goal is to abide and it's in abiding that we bear the fruit of virtue, Yes. Um, these things are reoriented around our who we are in the, before the face of God. And quite honestly, I would like, you know, the Old Testament is just one long pedagogy of this. Like, why does God elect Israel and or Abraham's family? Well, it's not because they were the most powerful, right? So he likes them in their weakness. <laughs> yeah. He gives them like the worst piece of real estate on the planet. Like, I'm Man. just going to surround you with world with superpowers, sure. you know, but trust me, it'll be fine. You know, and, and their constant temptation is to wield worldly power. You're going to be tempted towards making these treaties with these other countries. You're going to be tempted right. to, you know, and in a worldly view away, it's foolishness. They're going to be destroyed. Yeah. The Assyrians are coming again, right? Yeah. It's well, choosing Moses and for the vocation he's That's chosen right. for, yeah. Cho- Joseph and the vocation he's chosen for, David. And his- yeah. And all of this Really? Is this guy's faith. the king? That's right. And, yeah. and Hebrews 11 names. Yeah. They were strong out of their weakness because they lived by faith and faith just is this kind of thing. And, you know, faith in scripture is opposed. Paul in second Corinthians five opposes faith and sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. So if your view of power is one that you can look around and say, look, this is powerful. That's right. Right. And this is again, my worry is that if it's not constructed on the cross and it's constructed in creation, ultimately we're all going to agree by sight that it's powerful. And, you know, again, to, to go back to something you said earlier, like this doesn't mean that somehow we're not interested in building institutions. It's not you're right. There, yeah. there, there could be an overreaction to say this is why. And, you know, quite honestly, like, you know, early evangelicals, like I'm thinking 100 years ago, they were against endowing universities, many of them. 
because it didn't seem faithful because the end is coming any second. Right. right. Like there, right. So there was some short sighted thinking that I being at a Christian university would wish, man, it'd be great if we had a, <laughs> right, right. some of these, what now would be billions you of would, You wouldn't mind the endowment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, at yeah. the same time, I look at them and think, you know, but if we would have had throughout the last hundred years, if we wouldn't have had need, would we still be faithful? Yeah. I mean, there, 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 I do have some real questions that I, I think there's ways to build Christian kind of institutions, but they're only ever going to be strong in and through their weakness. It's going to work the same way. They yeah. have to live by faith. You can't just kind of bake into them the right kind of goals and That's expect right. that somehow they're going to be meaningful. That's right. Well, and the, and, and the fruit of love is <laughs> what a different thing to measure. And now we're talking about relations with others mm-hmm. and discernment and paying attention to how God actually is at work in human hearts. And these things are far more complex to identify and certainly to measure in any meaningful way than the size of an institution or the influence of a particular ministry or, you know, whether it's monetary, whether it's business and structures, whether it's expansion and um, in kind of what we've, you know, a vision we've had and seeing that kind of play out and kind of the development of a corporate entity. These things are just, they are things we can measure, we can quantify, we can weigh in worldly sense. And um, the, the kingdom fruit of love, you know, it's, it's weighed in a different way. It's discerned and identified in a different manner. And, and more often than not, and I think this bears itself out in the history of the church, it, showing up in, in the little, in the hidden, in the yeah. seemingly insignificant and, and the often unrecognized mm-hmm. in worldly terms. Yeah. And yet it's in those places where we say, ah, oh, the power of God, the yeah, power yeah. of God at work. Totally. And I, I think as I hear you talking, Kyle, what, what, what surfaces for me is, can we look to the cross as genuinely powerful? Mm-hmm. Can we see what's happened there as God's power on display and can we recognize what Jesus is accomplishing? And um, of course, there's a way of talking about Jesus accomplished work upon the cross that we can kind of immediately apply to our lives. But the question is, do we believe that was real power there? Yeah. Yeah. Or not. Do we believe the fruit of love was on display there in a way that it has never been? Mm -hmm. And can we see it? Yeah. And, 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 and thinking about then how that might show up in our lives. Well, if the call is to take up our cross and follow him, That's right. then it's going to show up in similar ways. It's going to look to the world like utter failure. It's yeah. going to be folly and a stumbling block. But to those with eyes of faith, the wisdom of God, the power of God. Yeah. And I, I think what, what maybe as we draw to a close here, I think what we're hoping to kind of tease out here is – one, I think a little uh, more pointed clarity about what we mean when we say Christian power. Mm-hmm. And so I hope what what's being heard in this is um, theologically, the doctrine of God is looming really large in the conversation for us. Mm-hmm. Right? And I hope what's also being heard is the, the, the person and work of Christ, and in particular, his work upon the cross, is rooming, looming really large for us in our account and how we think about the nature of Christian power. Um, and I think it's, it's how it, it, it is that view of power, of course, believed 
actually in our hearts that's going to shape and inform how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And so if we really believe that it's power, it's his power that I come to know in my weakness and that in in abiding in that power, I actually will get the, the rich blessing and grace of watching that power bear fruit in and through my life in ways at times that certainly maybe um, I feel a sense of continuity with gifting and calling in place, but at times feel radically totally outside of myself Mm. in any capacity I might have. And thanks be to God. Wow. I can't like, I fumbled over that sermon. I didn't know what I was saying. It felt like the, the least clear one I've ever given. And that here I have, Maybe a woman coming up to me after a church service saying, well, God spoke to me in this way, right? I mean, how many times I've had that as a pastor, right? Yeah, yeah. And other times where I felt like, man, my manuscript was dialed in. <laughs> I nailed it, yeah, yeah. you know? And and who knows, you know, by the grace of God that mm-hmm. um, the Spirit is applying the Word to the hearts of theirs there. But at times, I mean, you know, I was kind of wielding, wielding my own theological acumen, wielding my yeah, yeah. intelligence, wielding my intuition. And, and so... I think as we think about what it looks to embrace this kind of power we're commending, uh, power and weakness for the sake of love, a power that comes from abiding and actively abiding. Yeah. Right? Um, it, this is the kind of power the church is called to take up. Yeah. And that, that ought to show up in our lives personally. It, it shows up for us in our devotional life and in our, what we often call our spiritual life, or mm-hmm. maybe you and I would want to call our religious life. Well, that, that word's a bit of an allergy these days, but it ought not be right. Yeah, and sure. you know, in our, in our worship, in our prayer life, mm-hmm. in our devotional life, um, and how we engage in the sacraments when we come on a Sunday morning and how we listen to a sermon or preach a sermon, but it also ought to show up in our relationships yeah. and, and how we relate to our spouse how we parent our children. Mm-hmm. Again, this is one of those areas where I think those who kind of want to disacknowledge power, like, well, well yeah. God, I mean, I, I suppose there's a way of doing that in your parenting. I don't recommend it, yeah, right? That you have right. no power. Right. <laughs> and we're, yeah. we're just kind of all on a even playing field. So the question is not, do you have a certain kind of power in relation to your, your, your child? The question is, what kind of power are you actually embracing as you now relate to your child as an authority figure, right? right? Um, As the one who's been called to guide them into God's way Mm -hmm. and wisdom, how does it show up in the way you relate to your vocation? And what does it look like to embrace your weakness um, as a businessman um, Mm -hmm. for the sake of um, bearing God's fruit of love in and through your vocation? It, It may indeed mean you, you, you don't get the promotions you hope to get. It may indeed sure. mean your business doesn't excel more. This isn't like, well, just do it this way and you still will get all the worldly success you're longing That's for. Right. And ultimately the worldly power we all know we really do want will come. It's just, just Jesus's like more difficult way to get there. Yeah. It's no, it, it may genuinely look like cr- the cross mm. where you, you march toward Golgotha, right? but do we believe that power is there? Yeah. And, yeah. and, how does that show up in our lives personally? Well, there's a few ways. And then, of course, it ought to show up corporately for us as churches and how we think about what we're doing on a Sunday morning, how we're forming totally. small groups, how we might structure a staff, what it might mean to have accountability and structures of governance and yeah, polity. Right. Of course, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, what it might mean for us as a church culture to actually embrace our weakness. I mean, this is a radical notion, but 
is it possible for a church to say together, we want to actually embrace our weakness, mm-hmm. that the glory of God may be on display here? And how do pastors actually model that? Rather than getting up once a year on Vision Sunday to remind the church of everything we have done that's gone really well, yeah. what does it look like to actually, in humility, model for the church as a shepherd of the church and embrace of our weakness. Yeah. Not to beat ourselves up, but to acknowledge totally. yeah, there, yeah, there's yeah, things yeah. about our church that are genuinely weak, <laughs> but we don't actually need to hide from that. These aren't things to cover over or pretend yeah. aren't there. These are actually places for us to discover God's power. Right. So this ought to show up for us in our personal lives. It ought to show up for us in more corporate ways, communal mm-hmm. ways. I think maybe as we draw to a close, um, I'm not, I'm not wondering what comes up for you by way of example as we think about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think this is something we're going to talk about in future episodes. I mean, I think one of the real clear things, I, I don't want to bring up now because I want to give it more time, but it's been interesting to hear people talk about like spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. How does this work? And I think spiritual gifts is a great example of this. I, I've literally sat down with elders of a church who told me, we think you're right biblically with what you said, but not, this is not going to work. So we do it another way. And so like, there's some, and I was astounded at the honesty Mm. and, but it wasn't honesty and weakness. It was like your book's garbage because it doesn't give us the plan to, Mm. it was fascinating because when I asked them, do do you disagree with what we claim biblically? No, we think this is what the Bible, it just won't work. So we do want to talk about that. You know, here's what I want to just leave you with. We've talked about a lot this episode. I don't want to do too much. I left last time with a question. Here, here's my question for you this week. I, I, I wanted you to just kind of consider this. You know, when you look at your life and you think about your flourishing, when you think about your power, when you think about your Christianity, is that something you primarily think of by sight or by faith? In other words, do you, you know, it, it takes, we all trust it takes faith to believe in Jesus, but it also means it's going to take faith to look at your life and say, that's the flourishing life. Is that true of you? Or have you actually bought into the worldly vision of what flourishing looks like? And do you, all your neighbors look around and say, wow, that person's, that person's killing it. And you trust that's actually a mirror of your faithfulness. So on one side, there's that question I think we need to ask. On the other side, what do you do with your weakness? This is the key one. If we're right about what scripture says, then weakness isn't something to hide from, but it's something to enter into. It's something to make known and it will lead you into humility. And so just take us, just consider things in your life. What do I do with my weakness? Have I organized my life so I never have to enter my weakness? When, when I'm confronted with it, do I just start thinking about all my strengths so I don't have to kind of grapple with the fact that I'm weak in something? Like, what do you actually do with these things? And how does your life actually show you where you believe power is really from? And as we sit with these things, even consider, you know, I, I keep going back in my mind to that, that verse from 1 Corinthians when Paul asks, you know, or Paul tells them there's a form of power that undermines the cross, a form of, sorry, preaching that undermines the power of the cross. And just think about like, you know, if you are a pastor, like, are you tempted by that form of preaching? If you're a worship leader, are you tempted by that form of leading worship? In your devotional life, is that what you're tempted by? In your business, in your home with your children, like in every area of your life, are you tempted to a form of flourishing and a form of power? that ultimately undermines what the cross is about? Or 
are you giving yourself to those things in such a way that people say, praise God, <laughs> because the power of God is clearly at work. And those are just fundamentally different things. Some good questions, I think, to end with. Again, thank you for joining us on yeah, yeah. this episode of Way of the Lamb, and we look forward to being with you next time. Grace and peace to you all. Yeah, bless you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Way of the Lamb podcast, a resource of the Center for Christian Formation. For more information, go to christianform.org.